Send Me to Sleep is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and have access to special bonus episodes, you can try out Premium Free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me, and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, chapters 6 and 7. In the last chapter, Margaret finally settled on a plan with her father to begin the move to Milton Northern. In these chapters, the Hale family says goodbye to Helston and make their way north. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 6 Farewell Unwatched the garden bough shall sway the tender blossom flutter down. Unloved, that beech will gather brown. The maple burn itself away. Unloved, the sunflower shining fair. Ray round with flames, her disk of seeds. And many a rose carnation feed. With summer spice, the humming air. Till from the garden and the wild 
a fresh association blow, and year by year the landscape grow, familiar to the stranger's child. As year by year the labourer tills his wanted glebe or lops the glades, and year by year our memory fades from all the circle of the hills. Tennyson The last day came. The house was full of packing cases, which were being carted off at the front door to the nearest railway station. Even the pretty lawn at the side of the house was made unsightly and untidy by the straw that had been wafted upon it through the open door and windows. The rooms had a strange, echoing sound in them, and the light came harshly and strongly in through the uncurtained windows, seeming already unfamiliar and strange. Mrs. Hale's dressing room was left untouched to the last, and there she and Dixon were packing up clothes and interrupting each other every now and then to exclaim at and turn over with fond regard some forgotten treasure in the shape of some relic of the children while they were yet little. They did not make much progress with their work. Downstairs, Margaret stood calm and collected, ready to counsel or advise the men who had been called in to help the cook and Charlotte. These two last, crying between whiles, wondered how the young lady could keep up so this day, and settled it between them that she had not likely to care much for Helston, having been so long in London. There she stood, very pale and quiet, with her large, grave eyes observing everything, up to the every present circumstance, however small. They could not understand how her heart was aching all the time, with a heavy pressure that no size could lift off or relieve, and how constant exertion for her perceptive faculties was the only way to keep herself from crying out with pain. Moreover, if she gave way, who was to act? Her father was examining papers, books, registers, what not, in the vestry with the clerk, and when he came in, there were his own books to pack up, which no one but himself could do to his satisfaction. Besides, was Margaret one to give way before strange men? or even household friends like the cook and Charlotte, 
not she. But at last, the four packers went into the kitchen to their tea, and Margaret moved stiffly and slowly away from the place in the hall where she had been standing so long, out through the bare, echoing drawing room, into the twilight of an early November evening. There was a filmy veil of soft, dull mist obscuring, but not hiding, all objects, giving them a lilac hue, for the sun had not yet fully set. A robin was singing, perhaps, Margaret thought, the very robin that her father had so often talked of as his winter pet, and for which he had made with his own hands, a kind of robin house by his study window. The leaves were more gorgeous than ever. The first touch of frost would lay them all low on the ground. Already, one or two kept constantly floating down, amber and golden in the low slanting sun rays. Margaret went along the walk under the pear tree wall. She had never been along it since she paced it at Henry Lennox's side. Here, at this bed of time, she began to speak of what she must not think of now. Her eyes were on that late, glowing rose as she was trying to answer and she had caught the idea of the vivid beauty of the feathery leaves of the carrots in the very middle of his last sentence. Only a fortnight ago, and all so changed. Where was he now? In London, going through the old round, dining with the old Harley Street set, or with the gayer young friends of his own. Even now, while she walked sadly through that damp and dreary garden in the dusk, with everything falling and fading and turning to decay around her, he might gladly put away his law books after a day of satisfactory toil and refreshing himself up as he had told her he often did, by a run in the temple gardens, taking in the while the grand, inarticulate, mighty roar of tens of thousands of busy men, nigh at hand, but not seen, and catching ever, at his quick turns, glimpses of the lights of the city coming up out of the depths of the river. He had often spoken to Margaret of these hasty walks, snatched in the intervals between study and dinner. At his best times, and in his best moods, had he spoken of them, and the thought of them had struck upon her fancy. 
Here there was no sound. The robin had gone away into the vast stillness of the night. Now and then, a cottage door in the distance was opened and shut, as if to admit the tired labourer to his home. But that sounded very far away. A stealthy, creeping, cranching sound among the crisp, fallen leaves of the forest, beyond the garden, seemed almost close at hand. Margaret knew it was some poacher, sitting up in her bedroom this past autumn, with the light of her candle extinguished, and purely reveling in the solemn beauty of the heavens and the earth. She had many a time seen the light noiselessly leap of the poachers over the garden fence, their quick tramp across the dewy, moonlit lawn, their disappearance in the black, still shadow beyond. The wild, adventurous freedom of their life had taken her fancy. She felt inclined to wish them success. She had no fear of them. But tonight, she was afraid. She knew not why. She heard Charlotte shutting the windows and fastening up for the night, unconscious that anyone had gone out in the garden. A small branch, it might be of rotten wood, or it might be broken by force, came heavily down in the nearest part of the forest. Margaret ran, swift as Camilla, down to the window and rapped at it with a hurried tremulousness which startled Charlotte within. Let me in, let me in, it is only me, Charlotte. Her heart did not still its flutter till she was safe in the drawing room, with the windows fastened and bolted, and the familiar walls hemmed her round and shutting her in. She had sate down upon the packing case, cheerless, chill with the dreary and dismantled room. No fire nor other light, but Charlotte's long, unsnuffed candle. Charlotte looked at Margaret with surprise, and Margaret, feeling it rather than seeing it, rose up. I was afraid you were shutting me out altogether, Charlotte, said she, half smiling. And then you would never have heard me in the kitchen, and the doors into the lane and churchyard are locked long ago. Oh, miss, I should have been sure to have missed you soon. The men would have wanted you to tell them how to go on and I have put tea in Master's study as being the most comfortable room, so to speak. Thank you, Charlotte. You are a kind girl. 
I shall be sorry to leave you. You must try and write to me if I can ever give you any little help or good advice. I shall always be glad to get a letter from Helston, you know. I shall be sure and send you my address when I know it. The study was all ready for tea. There was a good blazing fire and unlighted candles on the table. Margaret sat down on the rug, partly to warm herself, for the dampness of the evening hung about her dress, and over-fatigue had made her chilly. She kept herself balanced by clasping her hands together round her knees, her head dropped a little towards her chest. The attitude was one of despondency, whatever her frame of mind might be. But when she heard her father's step on the gravel outside, she started up and hastily shaking her heavy black hair back and wiping a few tears away that had come on her cheek she knew not how. She went out to open the door for him. He showed far more depression than she did. She could hardly get him to talk, although she tried to speak on subjects that would interest him, at the cost of an effort every time which she thought would be her last. Have you been on a very long walk today? asked she on seeing his refusal to touch food of any kind. As far as Fordham Beaches, I went to see Widow Maltby. She is sadly grieved at not having wished you goodbye. She says little Susan has kept watch down the lane for past days. Nay, Margaret, what is the matter, dear? The thought of the little child watching for her, and continually disappointed, from no forgetfulness on her part, but from sheer inability to leave home, was the last drop in poor Margaret's cup, and she was sobbing away as if her heart would break. Mr. Hale was distressingly perplexed. He rose and walked nervously up and down the room. Margaret tried to check herself, but would not speak until she could do so with firmness. She heard him talking as if to himself. I cannot bear it. I cannot bear to see the suffering of others. I think I could go through my own with patience. Oh, is there no going back? No, father, said Margaret, looking straight at him and speaking low and steadily. It is bad to believe you in error. It would be infinitely worse to have known you a hypocrite. She dropped her voice at the last few words, 
as if entertaining the idea of hypocrisy for a moment in connection with her father, savoured of irreverence. Besides, she went on, it is only that I am tired tonight. Don't think that I am suffering from what you have done, dear papa. We can't either of us talk about it tonight, I believe, said she, finding that tears and sobs would come in spite of herself. I had better go and take Mama up this cup of tea. She had hers very early, when I was too busy to go to her, and I am sure she will be glad of another now. Railroad time inexorably wrenched them away from lovely, beloved Helston the next morning. They were gone. They had seen the last of the long, low parsonage home, half covered with china roses and pyracanthus, more home-like than ever in the morning sun that glittered on its windows each belonging to some well-loved room. Almost before they had settled themselves into the car, sent from Southampton to fetch them to the station, they were gone away to return no more. A sting at Margaret's heart made her strive to look out to catch the last glimpse of the old church tower at the turn where she knew it might be seen, above a wave of forest trees. But her father remembered this too, and she silently acknowledged his greater right to the one window from which it could be seen. She leant back and shut her eyes, and the tears welled forth and hung glistening for an instant on the shadowing eyelashes before rolling slowly down her cheeks and dropping unheeded on her dress. They were to stop in London all night at some quiet hotel. Poor Mrs. Hale had cried in her way nearly all day, and Dixon showed her sorrow by extreme crossness and a continual, irritable attempt to keep her petticoats from even touching the unconscious Mr. Hale, whom she regarded as the origin of all this suffering. They went through the well-known streets, past houses which they had often visited, past shops in which she had lounged, impatient by her aunt's side while that lady was making some important and interminable decision. Nay, absolutely past acquaintances in the street, for, though the morning had been of an incalculable length to them, and they felt as if it ought long ago to have closed in for repose of darkness, it was the very busiest of London times in the afternoon in November when they arrived there. It was long since Mrs. Hale had been in London, and she roused up, 
almost like a child, to look about her at the different streets, and to gaze after and exclaim at the shops and carriages. Oh, there's Harrison's, where I bought so many of my wedding things. Dear, how altered. They've got immense plate glass windows, larger than Crawford's in Southampton. Oh, and there, I declare. No, it is not. Yes, it is, Margaret. We have just passed Mr. Henry Lennox. Where can he be going among all these shops? Margaret started forward and as quickly fell back, half smiling at herself for the sudden motion. They were a hundred yards away by this time, but he seemed like a relic of Helston. He was associated with a bright morning, an eventful day, and she should have liked to have seen him without his seeing her, without the chance of their speaking. The evening, without employment, passed in a room high up in a hotel, was long and heavy. Mr. Hale went out to his booksellers and to call on a friend or two. Everyone they saw, either in the house or in the streets, appeared hurrying to some appointment, expected by or expecting somebody. They alone seemed strange and friendless and desolate. Yet within a mile, Margaret knew of a house after house, where she for her own sake and her mother for her aunt Shaw's would be welcomed if they came in gladness, or even in peace of mind. If they came sorrowing and wanting sympathy in a complicated trouble like the present, then they would be felt as a shadow in all these houses of intimate acquaintances, not friends. London life is too whirling and full to admit of even an hour of that deep silence of feeling which the friends of Job showed when they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Chapter 7 New Scenes and Faces Mist clogs the sunshine. Smoky dwarf houses hem me around everywhere. Matthew Arnold The next afternoon, about twenty miles from Milton Northern, they entered on the little branch railway that led to Heston. Heston itself was one long, straggling street, running parallel to the seashore. 
It had a character of its own, as different from the little bathing places in the south of England as they again from those of the continent. To use a Scotch word, everything looked more purpose-like. The country carts had more iron and less wood and leather about the horse gear. The people in the streets, although on pleasure bent, had yet a busy mind. The colours looked greyer, more enduring, not so gay and pretty. There were no smock frocks, even among the country folk. They retarded motion, and were apt to catch on machinery, and so the habit of wearing them had died out. In such towns in the south of England, Margaret had seen shopmen, when not employed in their business, lounging a little at their doors, enjoying the fresh air, and looking up and down the street. Here, if they had any leisure from customers, they made themselves business in the shop. Even, Margaret fancied, to the unnecessary unrolling and re-rolling of ribbons. All these differences struck upon her mind as she and her mother went out next morning to look for lodgings. Their two nights at hotels had cost more than Mr. Hale had anticipated, and they were glad to take the first clean cheerful rooms they met with that were at liberty to be received by them. There, for the first time for many days, did Margaret feel at rest. There was a dreaminess in the rest, which made it still more perfect and luxurious to repose in. The distant sea lapped the sandy shore with measured sound the nearer cries of the donkey boys, the unusual scenes moving before her like pictures, which she cared not in her laziness to have fully explained before they passed away. The stroll down to the beach to breathe the sea air, soft and warm on that sandy shore, even to the end of November, the great long misty sea line touching the tender coloured sky, the white sail of a distant boat turning silver in some pale sunbeam. It seemed as if she could dream her life away in such luxury of pensiveness, in which she made her present all in all, from not daring to think of the past or wishing to contemplate the future. But the future must be met, however stern and iron it be. One evening, it was arranged that Margaret and her father should go the next day to Milton Northern and look out for a house. Mr. Hale had received several letters from Mr. Bell and one or two from Mr. Thornton, and he was anxious to ascertain at once 
a good many particulars respecting his position and chances of success there, which he could only do by an interview with the latter gentleman. Margaret knew that they ought to be removing, but she had a repugnance to the idea of a manufacturing town, and believed that her mother was receiving benefit from Hestonair, so she would willingly have deferred the expedition to Milton. For several miles before they reached Milton, they saw a deep, lead-coloured cloud hanging over the horizon in the direction in which it lay. It was all the darker from the contrast with the pale, grey-blue of the wintry sky, for in Heston there had been the earliest sign of frost. Nearer to the town, the air had a faint taste and smell of smoke, perhaps, after all, more a loss of the fragrance of grass and herbage than any positive taste or smell. Quick, they were whirled over long, straight, hopeless streets of regularly built houses, all small and of brick. Here and there, a great oblong, many-windowed factory stood up, like a hen among her chickens, puffing out black, unparliamentary smoke, and sufficiently accounting for the cloud which Margaret had taken for foretell rain. As they drove through the larger and wider streets, from the station to the hotel, they had to stop constantly great loaded lorries blocked up the not over-wide thoroughfares. Margaret had now and then been in the city in her drives with her aunt, but there the heavy lumbering vehicles seemed various in their purpose and intent. Here every van, every wagon and truck bore cotton either in the raw shape in bags or the woven shape in bales of calico. People thronged the footpaths, most of them well-dressed as regarded the material, but with a slovenly looseness which struck Margaret as different from the shabby, threadbare smartness of a similar class in London. New Street, said Mr. Hale. This, I believe, is the principal street in Milton. Bell has often spoken to me about it. It was the opening of this street from a lane into a great thoroughfare thirty years ago, which has caused his property to rise so much in value. Mr. Thornton's mill must be somewhere not very far off, for he is Mr. Bell's tenant. But I fancy he dates from his warehouse. Where is our hotel, Papa? Close to the end of this street, I believe. Shall we have lunch before or after we've looked at the houses we marked in the Milton Times? Oh, 
Let us get our work done first. Very well. Then I will only see if there is any note or letter for me from Mr. Thornton, who said he would let me know anything he might hear about these houses, and then we will set off. We will keep the cab. It will be safer than losing ourselves and being too late for the train this afternoon. There were no letters awaiting him. They set out on their house hunting. Thirty pounds a year was all they could afford to give, but in Hampshire they could have met with a roomy house and pleasant garden for the money. Here, even the necessary accommodation of two sitting rooms and four bedrooms seemed unattainable. They went through their list, rejecting each as they visited it. They then looked at each other in dismay. We must go back to the second, I think. That one in Crampton. Don't they call the suburbs? They were three sitting rooms. Don't you remember? How we laughed at the number compared with the three bedrooms. But I have planned it all. The front room downstairs is to be your study and our dining room. Poor Papa. For you know, we settled Mama is to have as cheerful a sitting room as we can get. And that front room upstairs with the atrocious blue and pink paper and heavy cornice, had really a pretty view over the plain, with a great bend of river, or canal, or whatever it is, down below. Then I could have the little bedroom behind, in that projection at the head of the first flight of stairs over the kitchen. You know, and you and Mama the room behind the drawing room, and that closet in the roof will make you a splendid dressing room. But Dixon and the girl we are to have to help. Oh, wait a minute. I am overpowered by the discovery of my own genius for management. Dixon is to have, let me see, I had it once the back sitting room. I think she will like that. She grumbles so much about the stairs at Heston, and the girl is to have that sloping attic over your room and Mama's. Won't that do? I dare say it will. But the papers, what taste, and the overloading such a house with colour and such heavy cornices. Never mind, Papa. Surely you can charm the landlord into repapering one or two of the rooms. The drawing room and your bedroom, for Mama will come most in contact with them, and your bookshelves will hide a great deal of that gaudy pattern in the dining room. Then you think it is best? If so, I had better go at once and call on this Mr. Donkin, to whom the advertisement refers me. 
I will take you back to the hotel, where you can order lunch and rest, and by the time it is ready, I will be with you. I hope I shall be able to get new papers. Margaret hoped so too, though she said nothing. She had never come fairly in contact with the taste that loves ornament, however bad, more than the plainness and simplicity which are themselves the framework of elegance. Her father took her through the entrance of the hotel, and leaving her at the foot of the staircase, went to the address of the landlord of the house they had fixed upon. Just as Margaret had her hand on the door of their sitting room, she was followed by a quick-stepping waiter. I beg your pardon, ma'am. The gentleman was gone so quickly, I had no time to tell him. Mr. Thornton called almost directly after you left, and as I understood from what the gentleman said, you would be back in an hour. So I told him so, and he came again about five minutes ago and said he would wait for Mr. Hale. He is in your room now, ma'am. Thank you. My father will return soon, and then you can tell him. Margaret opened the door and went in with the straight, fearless, dignified presence habitual to her. She felt no awkwardness. She had too much the habit of society for that. Here was a person come on business to her father, and, as he was one who had shown himself obliging, she was disposed to treat him with a full measure of civility. Mr. Thornton was a good deal more surprised and discomfited than she. Instead of a quiet, middle-aged clergyman, a young lady came forward with frank dignity. A young lady of a different type to most of those he was in the habit of seeing. Her dress was very plain. A close straw bonnet of the best material and shape, trimmed with white ribbon. A large Indian shawl which hung about her in long, heavy folds and which she wore as an empress wears her drapery. He did not understand who she was, as he caught the simple, straight, unabashed look, which showed that his being there was of no consequence to her beautiful countenance, and called up no flush of surprise to the pale ivory of the complexion. He had heard that Mr. Hale had a daughter, but he had imagined that she was a little girl. Mr. Thornton, I believe, said Margaret, after a half-instant's pause, during which his unready words would not come. Will you sit down? My father brought me to the door not a minute ago, but unfortunately... 
he was not told that you were here, and he has gone away on some business. But he will come back almost directly. I am sorry you have had the trouble of calling twice. Mr. Thornton was in habits of authority himself, but she seemed to assume some kind of rule over him at once. He had been getting impatient at the loss of time on his market day, the moment before she appeared. Yet now, he calmly took a seat at her bidding. Do you know where it is that Mr. Hale has gone to? Perhaps I might be able to find him. He has gone to Mr. Donkin in Canute Street. He is the landlord of the house my father wishes to take in Crampton. Mr. Thornton knew the house. He had seen the advertisement and been to look at it in compliance with a request of Mr. Bell's that he would assist Mr. Hale to the best of his power, and also instigated by his own interest in the case of a clergyman who had given up his living under circumstances such as those of Mr. Hale. Mr. Thornton had thought that the house in Crampton was really just the thing, but now that he saw Margaret with her superb ways of moving and looking, he began to feel ashamed of having imagined that it would do very well for the Hales, in spite of a certain vulgarity in which had struck him at the time of looking it over. Margaret could not help her looks, but the short, curled upper lip, the round, massive, upturned chin, the manner of carrying her head, her movements, full of a soft, feminine defiance, always gave strangers the impression of haughtiness. She was tired now, and would much rather have remained silent, and taken the rest her father had planned for her. But, of course, she owed to herself to be a gentlewoman, and to speak courteously from time to time to this stranger. Not overbrushed, nor overpolished, it must be confessed, after his rough encounter with Milton streets and crowds. She wished that he would go, as he had once spoken of doing, instead of sitting there, answering with curt sentences all the remarks she made. She had taken off her shawl and hung it over the back of her chair. She sat facing him and facing the light. Her full beauty met his eye. Her round, white, flexile throat rising out of the full, yet lithe figure. Her lips moving so slightly as she spoke, not breaking the cold, serene look of her face with any variation from the one lovely, haughty curve. Her eyes, with their soft gloom, meeting his quite maiden freedom. He almost said to himself that he did not like her before their conversation ended. 
He tried to compensate himself for the mortified feeling that while he looked upon her with an admiration he could not repress, she looked at him with proud indifference, taking him, he thought, for what, in his irritation, he told himself was a great rough fellow, with not a grace or a refinement about him. Her quiet coldness of demeanour he interpreted into contemptuousness, and resented it in his heart to the pitch of almost inclining him to get up and go away, and have nothing more to do with these hails and their superciliousness. Just as Margaret had exhausted her last subject of conversation, and yet conversation that could hardly be called which consisted of so few and such short speeches, her father came in, and with his pleasant, gentlemanly courteousness of apology, reinstated his name and family in Mr. Thornton's good opinion. Mr. Hale and his visitor had a good deal to say respecting their mutual friend, Mr. Bell, and Margaret, glad that her part of entertaining the visitor was over, went to the window to try and make herself more familiar with the strange aspect of the street. She got so much absorbed in watching what was going on outside that she hardly heard her father when he spoke to her, and he had to repeat what he said. Margaret, the landlord will persist in admiring that hideous paper, and I am afraid we must let it remain. Oh dear, I am sorry, she replied, and began to turn over in her mind the possibility of hiding part of it, at least, by some of her sketches, but gave up the idea at last, as likely only to make bad worse. Her father, meanwhile, with his kindly country hospitality, was pressing Mr. Thornton to stay for luncheon with them. It would have been very inconvenient to him to do so, yet he felt that he should have yielded if Margaret, by word or look, had seconded her father's invitation. He was glad she did not, and yet he was irritated at her for not doing so. She gave him a low, grave bow when he left, and he felt more awkward and self-conscious in every limb than he had ever done in his life before. Well, Margaret, now to luncheon as fast as we can. Have you ordered it? No, Papa. That man was here when I came home, and I have never had an opportunity. Then we must take anything we can. He must have been waiting a long time, I'm afraid. It seemed exceedingly long to me. I was just at the last gasp when you came in. He never went on with any subject, but gave little, short, abrupt answers. 
Very much to the point, though, I should think. He is a clear-headed fellow. He said, did you hear, that Crampton is on a gravelly soil, and by far the most healthy suburb in the neighbourhood of Milton. When they returned to Heston, there was the day's account to be given to Mrs. Hale, who was full of questions, which they answered in the intervals of tea-drinking. And what is your correspondent, Mr. Thornton, like? Ask Margaret, said her husband. She and he had a long attempt at conversation, while I was away speaking to the landlord. Oh, I hardly know what he's like, said Margaret lazily, too tired to tax her powers of description much. And then, rousing herself, she said, He is a tall, broad-shouldered man, about how old, Papa? I should guess about thirty. About thirty, with a face that is neither exactly plain nor yet handsome. Nothing remarkable. Not quite a gentleman, but that was hardly to be expected. Not vulgar or common, though, put in her father, rather jealous of any disparagement of the sole friend he had in Milton. Oh no, said Margaret, with such an expression of resolution and power, no face, however plain in feature, could be either vulgar or common. I should not like to have a bargain with him. He looks very inflexible. Altogether, a man who seems made for his niche, Mama. Sagacious and strong as becomes a great tradesman. Don't call the Milton manufacturers tradesmen, Margaret, said her father. They are very different. Are they? I apply the word to all who have something tangible to sell. But if you think the term is not correct, Papa, I won't use it. But, oh, Mama, speaking of vulgarity and commonness, you must prepare yourself for our drawing room paper. Pink and blue roses with little yellow leaves and such a heavy cornice round the room. But when they removed their new house in Milton, the obnoxious papers were gone. The landlord received their thanks very composedly and let them think, if they liked, that he had relented from his expressed determination not to repaper. There was no particular need to tell them that what he did not care to do for a Reverend Mr. Hale, unknown in Milton, he was only too glad to do at the one short, sharp remonstrance of Mr. Thornton, the wealthy manufacturer.